The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. He's asked, well, do you think this is the evil empire? And he says, oh, I was talking about another time, another era. And that's very powerful symbolism. That was David Reynolds talking about Ronald Reagan's visit to Moscow. On that particular summit, then in order to have this informality, you know, they went snorkeling together and sailing and jogging and each side did whatever they did and they were running around in their shorts. And that was Christina Spohr describing the 1979 World Leader Summit at Guadeloupe. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of September 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about summits, the series of meetings between world leaders that helped shape the Cold War and that focus particular attention on the nuclear arms race and the future of Germany. To explore this topic, I paid a visit to Christ's College, Cambridge, where I met with Professor David Reynolds, and Dr Christina Spohr, the editors of a new volume entitled Transcending the Cold War, Summit Statecraft and the Dissolution of Bipolarity in Europe, 
1970 to 1990. Here's what they had to say. David and Christina, could you first of all tell us a bit about how this book came about and what your two roles in the project are? Well, I guess um, I had this idea about a, a book on summits and I came to you because you had already written about 20th century summits and my intention was to think about the end of the Cold War and what role summits played in this. And um, we were thinking of running this um, as a conference in the first instance and of having each chapter co-authored by two historians so that they would have a summit meeting almost together. And then the other idea was that instead of having a workshop where people just talked in a general way, uh, we asked people in advance to write a paper, a draft paper. And Christina had the idea from a previous conference where uh, we didn't let the authors present their paper. We, as editors, presented the paper in summary. Uh, all of us had a discussion, and then the, the original author was able to comment at the end. That way, it prevented a lot of waffle around, and we really got to the point. And that was a really important part of the project, I think. And so a lot of our um, listeners won't really necessarily understand how an edited volume works. Could you give us a sense of what does it mean to be the editors? How much sort of actual editing are you doing, and how much freedom do you give the individual chapter authors to just get on with what they want to do? First of all, we, we chose each pairing and we asked each scholar whether they were happy to work with the pair we had chosen for them. And um, then we sent them a list of questions that we each wanted them to tackle. Kind of themes that we wanted them yeah, to Yeah, so we, we thought about, you know, um, what is it we want to get out of this volume in terms of, you know, why these summits matter and how they matter in this particular period in time in bringing about the end of the Cold War and transcending the Cold War. Um, and then these two authors had to each think about their protagonists and work out together how they were tackling these questions. And we wanted them to particularly focus on issues about leadership, uh, how far individuals shape history, how far they are shaped by history. So we, we gave them an agenda we wanted them to work around, but it wasn't absolute. And part of the fun of our workshop was that people discussed this, came back on us. And then after the workshop, we sent some comments to each of the authors suggesting things that could be changed in the draft. Uh, so that way we were, we were acting as fairly hands-on editors in trying to shape the overall structure of the book. And then we asked them each um, also to think about a photo or a, or a moment, a location that was particularly um, reflective um, of, that, of that summit and of that pairing they had been looking at. And um, then we asked them, or we said we would put it right at the front of um, the chapter sort of as a hook um, to think about the summit also as a performative act. Because we were interested in this idea that summits have content, uh, leaders dealing with each other face to face, but they're also in the late 20th century, big media events. And so that we were interested, we have an anthropologist came in and commented on some of the papers. And he was very good in emphasising the idea that summits are performance. And, and we wanted to bring that out as well. And often that also bargained about where where they should meet, what the location should be, whether one party had to go to the other or whether they chose somewhere quite remote and entirely away from the media. And, you know, in that sense, perhaps a more exotic location. And that, that was something I was going to ask you guys about. The location of the summits are obviously quite important. I mean, how did they get chosen? Because there must have been quite a lot of issues about whether mm. someone goes to someone else. Mm. You know, if you've got two big superpowers, who's the one who has to travel? Who's the one who gets the other one to come to them? How did they decide these kind of questions? 
Well, the idea, I think, in, in some of the sequences of summits we talked about, so the Nixon sequence, the Reagan sequence, um, would be that you would move from one place to another. Nixon went to Moscow uh, in 1972. No American president had been to the Soviet capital. Um, but then the idea was that Brezhnev would come to Washington, Nixon would go somewhere else. It would become a, a process. But you're quite right that there was an issue of, of, of precedence, of privilege involved. That's why, for example, Reagan and Gorbachev, their first meeting after the the so-called New Cold War, when Soviet-American relations had been really bad, was in Geneva, a neutral capital, not a Cold War site in any way or other. Yeah, I think we could also say some of these summits reflect that it was kind of a reconnaissance trip. You tried to find out what the other place is like because you hadn't been to uh, an evil empire to another mm. place. Uh, and sometimes it was better to choose a neutral location, often in a very small country in Geneva or in Reykjavik in Iceland, um, quite far away, um, where they sort of would meet halfway. But for example, um, this, this one summit in, in Guadeloupe that was chosen to get uh, the French to host it on a matter that was really a NATO matter, but it was so far away from um, the media limelight um, that they sort of could almost do this in hiding. So the interesting thing I thought about summits is they seem to, the Cold War sort of almost halfway through before summits really get going. Why does it take that long for successful summits between the Cold War powers to really begin? Well, the idea, the word summit had been put into um, common parlance by Winston Churchill in 1950, and he certainly wanted to have what he called meetings, parlays at the summit to try and defuse the Cold War. But in the 50s and 60s, the confrontation is still too hot. It's too unbalanced. Uh, you have the Cuban crisis. It's really not until the era of detente when there is an attempt to ease tension between the two sides that there's a feeling that the leaders ought to meet to try and uh, develop a process of understanding, a mutual understanding, because nuclear weapons, uh, and that's a crucial element in our story, in our book, nu nuclear weapons are just too dangerous to play around with. I mean, the other strand is, for example, the German question um, in the heart of the Cold War in Europe. And there this issue was that um, West Germany would not recognize East Germany as a separate independent state because they wanted to keep the option of unification open. And so the first time in this detente era that they begin to meet is, um, you know, uh, the West German Chancellor traveling by train to Erfurt in East Germany. And it was really, as, as Billy Brandt said, getting the smell of the other. And then the return visit was also a train journey from East Germany to Kassel in West Germany. And that was a huge icebreaker at a time when there was this, you know, fundamental division between the two Germanies. And what, I mean, what's the story about Brandt in the, in the hotel in Erfurt? I mean, it's just a very moving moment, isn't it? When uh, Yeah, he, he goes to the window and the crowd is actually shouting, Willi, 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 and they mean Willi Brandt, they don't mean the East German leader Willi Stoff. Um, and the East Germans are totally shocked that this spontaneous action happens because it, in some ways it shows what Willy Brandt had been saying, that we must keep the nation together. And traveling by train and walking with Willy Stoff um, through Erfurt was, was to remind people that, you know, the Germans are still one nation and they would actually get to see the West German leader. There was basically a sort of um, uh, spontaneous action by the people to get to see that West German leader by the window. And so there's, a big, there's quite a big symbolism of seeing these people because you had mm. similar scenes, I guess, when Gorbachev went to America 
Mm. And then Reagan in Moscow and Red Square does that famous... And so is a symbolic aspect of Islam almost the most important thing, do you guys think? Well, I think in our book, we, we try and emphasise the symbolic moments and the substantial moments, and both really matter. Uh, undoubtedly, in 1988, it's very important that Reagan, who has in 1983 decried the Soviet Union as the evil empire, is in Red Square. And we have a lovely picture of him in the book uh, with Gorbachev. And he's asked, well, do you think this is the evil empire? And he says, oh, I was talking about another time, another era. And that's very powerful as symbolism. But I think also one of the things we emphasise all the way through the book is that the opportunities that leaders have to meet uh, sometimes can be a turnoff, but sometimes can be hugely important in international relations because Reagan and Gorbachev is an example. These two men clicked in a way nobody quite expected, and that had huge implications for international affairs. And if you think, for example, about um, the cool Gorbachev summit um, in July 1990, they had a very formal meeting in Moscow first, but then Gorbachev invited Kuhl to fly with him to the Caucasus to go with Gorbachev to his dacha. So that was, first of all, something very personal. Uh, no other Western leader had been invited there. Um, and although that summit was about, you know, very much substance on how to wrap up unification, how to wrap up the issue of um, Red Army withdrawal from um, East Germany, and Kuhl was using checkbook diplomacy, it was also a very symbolic moment because the two of them also went together to lay a wreath in um, Stavropol um, to remember World War II. And this was something that the, the two of them bonded, that they felt that they had a historic moment that they could change the world to move into a better, newer era. So do you think that the individual relationship between the leaders was almost the most important thing in, in deciding how well the summit worked, how well they, those people actually got on with each other? Well, I think one of our arguments in the book is that we think that at certain points in time, leaders did make a difference. And if you like, that's, I think, one of our big arguments that There's lots of social history, lots of structural history, and that's all very important. But at certain times, political leaders matter. And in the book, we try to identify some of those moments where we think it made a difference. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of argument that, you know, there's systemic forces that perhaps... Um, forces uh, the leaders into some kind of cooperation, that sort of a moment comes and they have to do something. But then also certain leaders have a sense for what is a historically decisive moment and that they want to grasp that moment, that they want to actually shape and create something. And I think what we looked at were sort of leadership combinations um, where there was something creative, some creative synergy that was happening and where both sides had a sense that they could change something for the better or just to achieve something different. And I think we see this in particular towards um, the, you know, in the end game um, of the Cold War, where there's a sense they want to build a new world order. They want to peacefully see the transformation in Europe. And they feel they can grasp that moment of history together and work at it. And so there's a great desire to come to a compromise in a sort of cooperative spirit. Most of these leaders, uh, I think, had a keen sense of history, of their place in history, and also the opportunities they had to make history. And that, I think, was part of our fascination here, that, you know, you you look at these people more closely and you and, and we, we spent a long time talking about, you know, what was their, well, Christine would call it their hinterland, what was their sort of, you know, their, their deep backstory about the way they understood the past, the way they understood the future. And, and most of the ones that really 
grasp opportunities were, uh, in the future were people who had a deep sense of the past. And, and that was fascinating for us as historians, I think. Yeah, I think some of the leaders also had a, an idea of why they think these discussions mattered. I mean, if you look at a period when symmetry wasn't really working, the late 1970s, um, Helmut Schmidt thought that it was important to keep any kind of dialogue open. He was kind of a double interpreter between East and West, but also within the Western alliance, he felt that if we communicate, if we try to cooperate and at least talk about the problems in a candid manner, we can make progress. I think, I mean, going back to your thing about symbolism, I mean, Schmidt, you're, you have a strong sense, having written on Schmidt, that, that he had a particular belief in the importance of getting away from formal symmetry, right? Yeah, he, he thought that uh, informal meetings where you can really speak face-to-face, -face, um, you know, either in the margins of a really big summit or create somewhere a meeting that is in a secluded place is the best way forward, that you can really sort of open out and try and resolve problems together. And keep the media out as much as possible. Yeah. He hated any, he sort of actually hated the word summit. He said that comes with the whole media spectacle and all the expectations that are attached to some, that something needs to come out of it. And he said, if we are in a period of a second Cold War, the most important thing is to keep the dialogues open and to communicate and to always try and put yourself in the shoes of the other side. This does not mean that you give up your position, but you need to keep um, communication channels open. So there were obviously cases where two leaders would get on well on a personal mm. level, but they each would have to then work with their regimes, which often have very different ideologies, very different mm. viewpoints. How much were the leaders kind of hamstrung by, I guess, public opinion, maybe, or the rest of their party or Politburo, whatever it was, in, in making these summits? I, I think it's a, it, it, that's one of the other fascinating things. You have men, and the, this period they're mostly men, um, going to the summit in a way because... They've, they've got to the top of their own system and it's almost like, you know, you, you've played in the premiership, now you want to go into the Champions League or something like that. It's just, it pulls you forward, it pulls you up. And they have this almost intoxicating moment at the, the summit where often they do bond, but then they have, to, as you say, to sell it back home. And what is striking about Reagan and Gorbachev is that they are both facing huge forces of reaction at home, uh, in Reagan's case in the Pentagon, the National Security Council, who do not want uh, dialogue with the Soviet Union. In Gorbachev's case, the military-industrial complex, who are dead against the kind of programme he's got. So it, it's a really intricate game they're playing where they're dealing face-to-face -face and then they're having to watch their backs all the time. It's, it's very complicated. And sometimes there's also the issue how much something is pre-prepared um, by the foreign ministries, by the Sherpas around them. And then, of course, those people are anxious that suddenly the leader sort of could run off and do their own thing. So there's also tension of that kind in the system. But sometimes it's also a game of um, good cop, bad cop. So, for example, um, Helmut Kohl developed a particularly good relationship with um, Gorbachev, but he also had um, cleared with um, George Bush on the American side, you know, what was the sort of Western position. And then um, Kohl actually liked using Genscher, although Genscher had quite different views on what his he wanted minister. for his yeah mm -hmm. his foreign minister wanted a sort of pan-european security structure and call um what tilted much earlier to the to bush's view that you know germany should stay in nato but then to mollify the soviets um they both both played in their discussions um with the soviet side and then eventually Genscher and Kohl totally agreed 
Um, but they, they tested different ideas because, of course, they were also playing with what the Soviets were throwing at them. So there's always a sort of tension also between sort of trans-governmental links, um, say, so the for German foreign ministry with the American foreign ministry and the chancellor with the president. And then they have to sort of find on their own side, again, a common line. So there's these kind of things we were looking at as well. Yeah. And it's very difficult, as it were, to get all the ducks in a row. Um, in the book, we bring out, I think, the the way that in the early 70s, it matters that an American president and a German chancellor each have a front man, if you like, uh, an advance man who they, they trust. So it, Henry Kissinger for Nixon, uh, Egon Barr for um, uh, Willy Brandt. But these are, to some extent, lone rangers. They operate by themselves. They don't have strong political links. So to some extent, the achievements they make aren't rooted in the political system. Whereas in the 80s, you have two foreign ministers, George Shultz for Reagan and Eduard Shevardnadze for Gorbachev, who are plugged into the political system, uh, are responsible uh, heads of government offices, but also bond with each other. And their working together really roots and anchors the achievements of these two leaders. So this, this whole business is is very complicated. You know, what you're talking about when you talk about summitry, people think it's just two leaders, but we have tried to explore the ways in which leaders need teams and sometimes the teamwork works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and I think in the early 1970s, when this detente was only beginning to happen, a lot of openings happened sort of through back channels and they happened at lower levels and to get contacts going. So, for example, in the German-German case, um, you know, you had Egon Bar, the Ostpolitik architect, talking with somebody on the East German side and then a different bureaucratic levels, they tried to create tighter networks because if the idea was that you want to create change through rapprochement, you wanted rapprochement at many levels. And because the most important idea was to get on the grassroots level people to get together, then in some ways what happened at the leadership level was kind of um, putting into a treaty form mm. what was meant to happen at a sort of level of the nation at large. So for that reason, um, you really have this rapprochement um, at two or three levels and networks being created. If you want the thing to actually take root, because I mean, it this needs is, treaties, it needs agreements. Yeah, because this is really at a period of time when neither side was talking with each other. So you mm. had to sort of recreate some kinds of bonds and, and understanding. Well, one thing I was, I was interested to know is, do you think that the, the leaders going into the summits, was their aim to end the Cold War mm. or to make it livable or to to get through, you know, to cope with the Cold War? I think we, we thought we about this about quite a lot, lot you know, yeah. what kind of concepts did these people have? Actually, quite a lot of leaders don't have much concepts. It's sometimes somebody entirely different in the government who has a particular idea. And so, I mean, if you look, for example, at the end of the Cold War on the American side, it's James Baker, the Secretary of State, who has ideas and, and uses words about um, the post-Cold War order and develops from there where this might be going. And then the president takes over. Um, and so actually there was a lot of, I mean, we, we have these three sections. We say that in the, in the first part, in the early 70s, it's really about thawing the Cold War. And the end point, even if that, for example, in the German case, is an idea that ideally one would want to achieve, it seems so far away. I mean, the idea of unification. Yeah, the idea yeah. of unification. Nobody can put a time limit on that, when that might be. It's high in the sky. Yeah, you it's, want it's it, a hope. Yeah, hope. And you want to keep that hope open. But what do you need to do? It, immediately the sense is you need to some kind of de facto engagement. You will not legally accept that there 
compared to German states, but you will make a treaty so that it normalizes the situation while keeping the option of unification open. And it's it's the same if you look at the superpowers or you look at American-Chinese relations. It's trying to get some kind of dialogue going. It's really the thawing. In a nuclear age where yeah. if, you've got, if you get relations wrong, it could be the end. There's always a fear it could be World War III, yeah. either in a limited nuclear warfare or in the worst case, you know, strategic weapons being used and the whole globe blowing up. So that's that's our, fear. that was our first phase, this idea of thawing yeah. out a really dangerous situation. And then we have a chapter, um, you know, on, on the Helsinki summit where, you know, there's these ideas of how one could make this Cold War livable to move into a new era. And once this is, gets implemented um, and, is, and is underwritten, um, actually superpower relations start getting much worse and we end up in a, in a second Cold War. And then it's much more about sort of living with the situation, muddling Money through, through. Mm. and wondering, you know, is there ever going to be an opening? And so once we get to the third part, which is the transcending the Cold War part, that's where we start off with that synergy, that creative mm. spark that happens between Gorbachev and Reagan that suddenly opens up entirely new perspectives. But even they didn't say, oh, the Cold War will be over in five years. They were focusing in particular on um, the nuclear strategic aspect, the nuclear weapons aspect, arms control and arms reductions. We spent a long time asking each other at different points in the book, you know, what did X think was going to happen in the Cold War over the next 20 years? You know, what evidence do we have for the way that Brandt or Schmidt thought about the end game? And uh, what was clear is that that what happened in 1989-91 was just amazing for most people. Uh, and the the fascination was then what happens when people suddenly see doors opening in all directions what do they do? And we have, you know, the last chapter is really about the way that Helmut Kohl in particular, after pausing for a moment over the Berlin Wall, then he really grabs it, doesn't he? He has this sense that he can go for German unification in a way nobody else could have done. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's this question, you know, 1989, you have Tiananmen Square in China. So China takes an entirely different route at a time when supposedly we are moving out of the Cold War because we have the revolutions in Eastern Europe. And then you have the Malta summit between Gorbachev and um, George Bush. And they, they talk vaguely about the end of the Cold War and common values. But what does that really mean? What do they mean by that end of the Cold War? So then suddenly everybody focuses on the German question because in a symbolic way with the wall falling and then the Germans and the Soviets and Americans negotiating this unification, you certainly in a symbolic way get some kind of ending of the Cold War in Europe with the moment Germany reunifies and gets fully sovereign and is in this heart of Europe. But at the same time, this is only possible with this unified Germany agreeing to be a catalyst also for further European integration that leads to the Maastricht Treaty and the EU, and on the other hand, staying in the NATO. So that's actually quite conservative because you have certain Cold War structures that survive this transformative period. And then there's George Bush talking about a new world order and the application of international law and the uses of the UN over the Gulf War. And only a year later, the Soviet Union is gone and this new co new world order that was constructed around the expectation that a reformed Soviet Union would still be around, that's gone too. Yeah. So suddenly you have something entirely different. And yet, all the while, all these powers have engaged with each other in a really cooperative way. And that was really unusual. I mean, you have the map of Europe changing 
but you haven't got any war. All these leaders are somehow managing, they're managers of peaceful change. And we found that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, one of, of the big arguments of the book is really that, that this is a period of, of really historical change, historic change, like 1815, like 1918, like 1945, except it doesn't happen through a major war. Yeah. It happens through big political changes, but they're mostly peaceful and they are managed by a group of leaders at the top. And part of what we're interested in in this slightly unfashionable study of summitry is what happens when leaders click and how far they can actually shape history in a positive way. And this, for us, is one of the major arguments of the book and one of the things that we found most fascinating in in editing it and working on it. And we found it striking what the leader said. I mean, Helmut Kohl said to Gorbachev, you know, we have a historical opportunity and let me refer to Bismarck. I want to grab the mantle of history. I recognize this as a decisive moment and a moment of historical decision-making that I want to take. And let us do this together. We have both understood what World War II was for Germany and the Soviet Union. Hmm. And it's fascinating that they have this great sense that they are there at the lever to do something historical. Yeah, to pull the lever of history at, at a moment. And that, I think, is something that interests us more generally about leaders, that, that you know, leaders take risks. Sometimes they blow up in their face, but other times um, it actually is positive and, and creative. And that was what was interesting about some of these leaders, um, the way that they actually took a risk, they gambled. Sometimes they operated like, They were playing chess in a kind of one move at a time. Sometimes it was a, a card game. You know, you you throw your card, you know, it's it's a risk. But each time you don't know how it's going to come out. And what we're writing about are the points at which the summitry works. There are other examples. Chilcot report is shows that uh, a bonding between leaders can be fatal. Blair and Bush ill-thought-out, ill-prepared, not properly grounded, uh, certainly on the British side, in domestic structures. So we're not making, as it were, uh, claims for summitry as as an answer to everything. But what we're saying is that diplomacy is an important element in effective international management and one that, where it works at the top, It makes it for fascinating historical study. And we have also thought about it, you know, in relation to current crises, like, for example, the Ukraine crisis and this question, you know, how does Russia look onto Western Europe and the West and why is there all this tension? And, you know, you could say, well, we are in an era where people could do Skype discussions or they can pick up the telephone. But that is not what leaders do. If you look at mm. the Ukraine crisis in 2014, um, you see, you know, Angela Merkel traveling to numerous cities within a week because she believed that the most most important thing is to see people face to face to negotiate some kind of peace deal because in her mind was the centenary of World War I, 1914. You know, that was a sort of big specter on her mind and everybody was talking about it. And the idea was still, you know, even at present day that to conduct a policy of dialogue is the most important thing and you have to do it face to face. To what extent do you think Summitry ended the Cold War? Could the Cold War have ended without, say, the Reagan-Gorbachev meeting and you know, the deals, was summary absolutely key to the end of the Cold War? I think if uh, one element of the Cold War is this issue of um, the nuclear arms race, 
then it is really striking that one thing that was linked to the heightening again of the Cold War, the second Cold War, which was tied up with the NATO dual track decision and this whole issue about the Soviets placing SS-20s in the Warsaw Pact, and then um, the NATO responding with um, Pershing II and cruise missile stationings in Western Europe, and in particular in West Germany, that then a couple of years later, because you get the right kind of superpower leaders Uh, having a meeting of minds, they actually disarm this category of weapons altogether. And that was unheard of. That had never happened in the Cold War. And so clearly this was something so positive that it was on the basis of that that they also started talking about strategic arms reductions, not just the limitations. There was really a sense of that one is moving into, again, a much more peaceful way of engagement of what hopefully one wouldn't have to call anymore the Cold War. But of course, the revolutionary changes in 1989 um, with all these sort of systemic um, changes and transformations within various uh, Eastern European states, when that starts to change the map, then I think you needed the leaders to somehow manage processes where you have um, floods of people in the streets going across boundaries. You need to recreate some kind of order. And the stability is given through governments and state structures. So they have to talk. I mean, if you if you try and play counterfactuals, it's hard to imagine. Well, the Soviet system is clearly increasingly rickety in the in the 80s, but it probably would have carried on for a, an indefinite period of time. Gorbachev is clearly a, a crucial element. This is a man who has this mixture of sort of vision, impatience for change and naivety about what will happen. He's an incredibly important factor because none of these changes in Eastern Europe, the reforms in Eastern Europe, would have happened if he hadn't signaled that he was in support of them, that they wouldn't be crushed by the Red Army. But once the reform uh, reform process really gets going in 1989 in Eastern Europe, anything could happen. And I think what we argue very strongly is that it mattered enormously that there were two leaders, Reagan and Gorbachev, who had come to an understanding and who showed that the nuclear arms race could be curbed. We emphasise the importance of the Washington summit in 1987, which is the first time the superpowers reduced their nuclear arsenals. And that shows the arms race is not going to spiral out of control. And we also emphasise that this, what could have been this huge tinderbox of German unification is handled by leaders in a responsible way. So I think we would argue in the book that Reagan, Gorbachev and arms control and uh, Bush, Kohl and Gorbachev over German unification, those are two really important moments in which you have to bring in summitry to explain why the Cold War ended in the way it did, peacefully, without major conflict, at least in the heart of Europe. Yeah, I think because you can, you must remember that, of course, the Chinese employed force. And that was the fear also in the German case Mm. that the West Germans thought, you know, the East Germans might do the same. And even in Malta, um, Bush was still wondering and trying to get uh, security from from Gorbachev um, that the Soviets would definitely not apply force. And so this, you know, this this image of the tank yeah. rolling in Eastern Europe, when Gorbachev sort of stuck to not ha- have that happen, although, of course, there was the Baltic incidents uh, in early 1991 uh, inside the Soviet Union, um, that gave people much more bigger sense. But in your chapter, trust. you have that thing, that line, what's the line about um, 
what Bush is, keeps writing at the time of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, Tiananmen, Tiananmen always, you know, in a sort of notebook that, you know, this is the great fear that they have because if this, if the Red Army would be let loose in East Germany or East German troops would be used, German shooting German people, then that would be really a tinderbox. Of yeah, because there's a lot of Americans who say, you know, hurrah, this is it, why aren't you, somebody said, you know, why aren't you jumping up, up and down the wall? And and, go, uh, and Bush says, I'm not getting, putting my two fingers in Gorbachev's face. Yeah. And it's, you know, he writes, he keeps writing Tiananmen, Tiananmen. You know, we don't want that to happen in the streets of, of Prague or in Berlin or whatever it was, you know. That was the alternative way that a country could move out of communism with a really bloody crackdown right in the capital city. And that appalled people. One of the things we've tried to do in the book, and it's unusual, is to keep bringing in the China element all the way through. Because this, the, to understand the relations between the two superpowers, you have to bring in the Chinese element in the early 70s. It's fundamental to Nixon's relations with, with Brezhnev. And we also argue it's important in 1989 in understanding the options available uh, for a, an exit from communism or a moving on from communism. And to see why these leaders behave the way they do. So Tiananmen is, is absolutely there as a central part of our story. In fact, we found it very striking that when Bush became president, that looking at the hinterland, what oh, yeah. kind of concept did he come in? He was mostly interested in China because that's where his previous experience was. He had been in China in the 1970s and then he was the director of the CIA. And so that was his first port of call and not continuing, you know, Reagan's um, sort of superpower that was policy. His first trip, wasn't yeah, it, as, it as was president. his first trip to to China and also he felt that there had to be a pause with the Soviets because really they couldn't be trusted. You had to first figure out, you know, um, he where, where he would stand with yeah. Gorbachev. And and it's only because Tiananmen Square incident happens that actually, um, and, and at the same time, you know, we have, we have had the elections in Poland and democratization is really moving on in Poland and Hungary, that Bush doesn't think, I need to look now and show some presence in Eastern Europe. And he travels to Eastern Europe. And that makes him think, actually, I should meet with Gorbachev. So he has what he calls the non-summit summit with Gorbachev in Malta because he wants kind of an informal exchange of, of views with the guy to really get to know him. And then that turns into a kind of icebreaker because it's yeah. that talking about common values and wanting to create a more peaceful world. But we found it really interesting tracking them, him through 1989. As Christina says, that first part, he's, he's thinking about Asia. He's thinking about China. Uh, that's where you've got the chance of a real, you know, uh, impressive opening. This is an economy that's been liberalising for a decade or more. Uh, then it's only really uh, uh, at the end of June that he goes, I think, to Western Europe. And then early July, he has a week in, was it? Uh, Poland. Poland and Hungary. And he just comes back absolutely gobsmacked at what's going on. And he says, we really got to do something about this. And know, again, it shows, you know, leaders have to have go to and see it and feel it. Yeah. And that sometimes sparks something the old man, what it is they want to do. And that creates something in their minds. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this because, you know, we're now in such a high-tech age. Uh, even in the 80s, you know, there's so many means of electronic communication. But there is no, there's nothing to substitute for that touchy-feely moment when you go to a place, you, you meet somebody and things begin to happen. And, and you know, th this is where, if you like, there is a sort of continuum of, of history over many centuries. We are in a totally different technological period from the Romans, yet those moments of, of a personal encounter are, are absolutely fundamental, I think, for, for understanding key points in history. 
these summits were played out often, like you mentioned earlier, like in front of huge media apparatus or mm. sometimes in front of television cameras. How important was kind of what was shown in the summit to the world, to how they were received, right? The kind of the public image of the summits. Well, we discussed this, um, the, mm. the handshake moment in, oh, yes. in China between mm. um, Nixon and Mao. That's, uh, and and, and Joe and Lai. Uh, yeah. Joe and Lai. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's really important in how that comes across to people, what, what people see. Um, I think it's a bit like uh, there's a photograph that um, you saw with uh, the, the, the German chancellor and the East German leader shaking hands with one person being on the train. It's, you know, mm. something that, that connects them. So actually quite a lot of... Well, tell the story about the, the, the handshake, because that's an interesting one, isn't it, about the, the Joe and Lai Nixon handshake. Or, or, well, I mean, so, so there, is a, there was a rooted story, belief in China that... In 1954, at the Geneva Conference about Indochina, the then American Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, had refused to shake the hand of Zhou Enlai, the, the, the Chinese premier. And this was a you know, complete snub. And it's not clear that that was actually true, but it was a, 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 something that the, the Chinese put about. Anyway, the important thing was Nixon was absolutely convinced that this was something he had to deal with. So he comes, when his Air Force One lands in Beijing... And they bring up the steps and finally the doors open. Nixon comes down the steps um, and he's got his arm straight out the whole way down because the one thing he's going to do is shake that man's hand to show that this is, you know, this is now a different era. Now, that was absolutely fundamental. That summit was all arranged from the American side. To, the timings were all arranged to hit American primetime television for the evening news bulletins. You had to hit three channels, CBS, ABC, NBC. If you got those you had got the message. And then, you know, a few major, uh, you know, Reuters, Washington Post, New York Times, you you could sell anything. And they understood that. Um, this was a period, I think, where the news management was obviously very important, but also possible to do and control in a way that's not true with, you know, Facebook, Twitter, everything else now. It's, um, I think you could tell a similar story about um, this cool Gorbachev meeting in the Caucasus because um, when Gorbachev first issued the invitation uh, to Kohl that he would be going from Moscow to the Caucasus, um, basically Kohl's advisor was sort of jumping up and down said, yes, yes, we have gotten that invitation. That means that we will have a breakthrough. But of course, that couldn't be told to the media. Because what? They were going to... Because they were going to negotiate in... in in this place that was Gorbachev's uh, holiday home, basically. Yeah. But um, then, at the same time, the Germans took their, a huge media entourage with them. And that alone, that you would have then these photographs when Kohl and Gorbachev walk by the river in the mountains and there are all these jokes about one of them falling into the stream, but, you know, here they are ho holding together and they're in their woolly jumpers. Then they sit down on tree stumps and they call it, the Pravda call it the summit without ties. So Kohl is there in his big, cardigan and Gorbachev and his trainers and the woolly jumper. That looks all really informal. But of course, the whole media uh, theater is happening. So this was immediately portrayed, you know, as news that, you know, here are the two people getting on really well and the Americans were reading this 5,000 miles away. So in some ways, you know, it was 
pre-expected that something amazing would happen and it was in that sense staged but at the same time also these clothes were, were showing this mm. informality on how well they were getting on and what they were doing and that they had really also on a personal level uh, found a way to engage with so each other. So sort of staged informality it's uh, it's uh, but it was I mean the the way those things were designed really mattered. Because there were all these statements about you know how you're in the fresh air of the of the Caucasus and in the clear air you can think much better and so you can come up to much clearer conclusions and then it was like you know the germans and the soviets have finally buried the hatchet of world war ii but you know that again the history lurks all the time you know nixon china that comes 20 years after americans and chinese have been killing each other in korea what's poignant about that summit in 1990 colin gorbachev and laying a, a wreath at a war memorial is that uh, it's it's only it's less than 50 years since hitler's juggernaut rolled all the way to Moscow. Um, and people haven't forgotten that kind of thing. Their families haven't forgotten that kind of thing. And that's why the simple symbolisms have an enormous eloquence. And so, you know, these things were played out across the Western media. In the less mm. free countries, such as Soviet Union, China, maybe somewhere East Germany, how did the state present the summits to the public? At lot? Did they try to censor them? How did they show them what happened? I mean, in the German-German summits in the early 70s, uh, 1970, that was actually portrayed um, in quite great detail in terms of what was achieved in the East German press and also um, some of the photographs and also the explanation how that gone on the train because, you know, one had gone through the country of the other. Um, but of course, what was censored was these issues about um, whatever the people were shouting. The, the issue I mentioned before about shouting for Willy Brandt because that, of course, was not part of the propaganda ploy. In the Soviet media, they would usually, I mean, some of the, the Nixon visits uh, or the Nixon visit. Well, Nixon would gave a speech, for example, uh, on uh, Soviet radio the last evening he was there. And that was relayed in full. Uh, Nixon had made a point, and this goes back to history again, he had gone to Leningrad, the conference was in Moscow, but he'd gone to Leningrad and he'd been shown around this very moving Piskaryovskoya Cemetery, uh, which is where I think there's about 600,000 dead from the siege of Leningrad. And he had been shown some of the relics, including a diary from a little girl called Tanya who records the death of all her relatives and things like this. Nixon made a point of using that on, on in the radio broadcast to the Russian people. And that was relayed in full. I think after the, um, isn't it the case that after the Brandt's visit to Erfurt, that was heavily censored in the East German press on the East German media, wasn't it? They... Yeah, all the things that had to do with the ordinary people, of course, yeah. was not mentioned. No, no. So there was there was some statement, but there was no sense of sort of vox pop and reactional, that kind of thing. Yeah. So on like, kind of a basic level, what actually typically happened at a summit? So how much time would they spend negotiating? How much time would they just be kind of eating or would they be doing sort of trips and visits? What would they actually do when they got together? Well, that depends very much <laughs> on the summit. I mean, we talked about the Guadeloupe summit before once, the 1979, 1979 yeah. um, you know, so they're discussing the yeah. world politics, the security affairs in particular, nuclear politics between um, West German Chancellor Schmidt and then on the French side, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, Jim Callaghan and, and the American President Carter. And they had hours and hours of rounds of meetings. I think every day about 
six, seven hours. They would have, like, say, two times, three hours meetings. But on that particular summit, then in, in order to have this informality, you know, they went snorkeling together and sailing and jogging and each side did whatever they did and they were running around in their shorts. And actually when they, and they met... And they brought in, their wives. And they brought they? their wives and yeah. then there was a little bit of cultural program. And, you know, the joke was that um, even if the discussions were actually really quite intense and there was a lot of irritations when Schmidt sort of lectured everybody on what he as a German thought about the situation, the security situation with the Soviet nuclear weapons and Carter didn't want to give in and Giscard took great pleasure in this. Then at the evening when they were having sort of um, Griad, uh, you know, in this sort of Caribbean kind of way because it's Guadeloupe, they all had a great time talking about all sorts of other things and dancing with their wives. So that it had a sort of holiday uh, feel. And so actually the press talked about, you know, the swimming pool summit and how actually, you know, whatever crisis was happening in Britain, that was almost like a joke. But the discussions were incredibly intense. But it also showed that if you have great differences on a human level, they would find a way of getting on. Yeah. And I mean, one of the reasons why that summit was quite successful in its own way was, that, of course, they all spoke English. If you have to have interpreting, then it makes it somewhat different. The Soviet-American summits at the beginning of our book, there you have consecutive translation. So in other words, I speak, an interpreter will scribble away, take notes of what I'm saying, and then he or she will put that into Russian or vice versa. So it takes double the time at least for the in a conversation. It's and not a real conversation. Also in that period, because, you know, it was acrimonious when two antagonists yeah. were talking. Say even you have a German-German summit where mm. they speak the same language, although they come with their ideological baggage in that language. It was pretty much each side was making a statement. It wasn't really a mutual yes, communication. Yes, it was a conversation. That's and, right. and, and that aspect that you would get conversation is much more something in the last years of yeah. the of But the it also depends War. on the health of the leaders. Brezhnev, for much of this period, certainly from the mid-70s onwards, is a basket case. He's had heart attacks. He's got all sorts of problems. And he, cards. He, yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, the, the Russians had endless jokes about, you know, Brezhnev, everything we'd done from prompt card. You know, I welcome you, Mrs. Thatcher. You know, everything has to be written down. So there isn't a conversation. In fact, the one that, I mean, when we wrote about the 1979 summit, the July, is it? Did In we write, Vienna, the Vienna, Vienna Salt right. Summit. Yeah. And, um, I mean, maybe you wrote about it to do with Schmidt, but, I mean, the, the, oh, no, Carter, that's right. Carter is told we have to plan this whole summit in advance because Brezhnev cannot do anything spontaneous. He will completely blow it. So, you know, it's one kind of thing if you're dealing with a leader like Gorbachev, who is quick-witted, is, is, you know, has, uh, can come back at you, all the rest of it. Somebody like Brezhnev, who is slow, plodding, and basically is going to mess it up, if there's any improvisation, the whole thing has to be prepared in advance. In fact, the American advisors were worried that Reagan, who was the older guy, yeah. you know, would not be able to keep up with Gorbachev through something totally unexpected at Reagan, and then he would suddenly go along with it. Yeah. That was the whole thing, that they, they might not just think the unthinkable, they might do the undoable. Yes. And, you know, it might all be a big surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the fear of advisors. They are, most, of, most standard foreign ministers would say, don't let these guys loose at a summit conference. You don't know what they're going to do. It's going to go, it's going wild. Leaders want to meet. Uh, they almost have a kind of, of just instinct to do this. And the standard view from a foreign ministry is, we'll do it all and then we will just let them uh, perform at the end and sign it. 
And most successful summits, I think we felt in the end, were a mixture of the two, that actually you had to give leaders their heads. Otherwise, you'd never break through all the bureaucratic log jams. On the other hand, you needed to have some good advisors. Otherwise, the leaders would make a mess of it. So finally, I guess, would you say that having studied all these summits of the Cold War period, do you see summits as a thing we should have more of? Do you think now with all the problems in the world today, (laughs) we should be getting world leaders together more to do this kind of summitry? I don't think it's a question of whether it's more or less. I think it's about when when leaders think about why they're seeking dialogue face to face. It's it's important with what kind of conceptual hinterland they come to, what their aims are, how well prepared they are. But it depends very much also who the other counterpart mm. is, and that you can never, you know. I mean, you have you to first. You don't know until you, you, know until you, go, until the you, until you yeah. go to the summit, mm. and you have to also sometimes develop relationship. I mean, Gorbachev and Kohl started off really badly because Kohl said in 1986-87, well, Gorbachev is just another Goebbels. You know, he's a big propaganda guy. You can't believe a single word he says. And then the German president, Richard von Weizsäcker, had to sort of mollify the Soviets <laughs> and, you know, represent and make it all good and talk about the war and so forth. And then eventually, buddy, buddy, you know, they? suddenly Gorbachev and, and, and Kohl find themselves as the best friends and they end up, you know, in the Caucasus. But you have to work at it. And I suppose part of what what struck us is that the time that leaders have to work at that kind of relationship, there may not be that sort of time, you know, because one of them will suddenly disappear and, you know, there'll be a complete change of, of caste. And this kind of diplomacy does require time and effort. The most successful summits are the ones where there's a sequence of them, and leaders have this chance to get to know each other. The teams have a chance to get to know each other. Classically in the Reagan-Gorbachev period, beginning to be in the Nixon period until he goes. But Perhaps so, it was also a lucky period that quite a lot of the leaders were around for quite a while. Yes, I mean, true. you can never really know. I mean, we have just seen it in the last few weeks. Mm. You know, leaders can come and go very suddenly. But, you know, when you when you develop a certain uh, consistency um, and you can, and for that reason, you can predict and calculate a little bit better what the other side is doing if you take an interest in that, mm. then you can create something creative. But, you know, you ask, you know, is, is, is summitry the answer? Is it a panacea? Chilcot report would show you very clearly that Bush Jr. and Blair had a very intense symbiotic relationship. And that sucked us into situations that really we uh, no government should have should have done. Uh, so, uh, as Christina says, it comes down like most things in history in the end to the people and the timing, really. And uh, so we're not offering prescriptions. We're just saying here's a really interesting period of summary. Let's look. We wanted to look at it through the lenses of a whole lot of different people and different sources. We had what I mean five six nations, uh, countries represented in our workshop. So lots of sources, which we couldn't have got. I mean, Christina is a, is a considerable linguist. Uh, I'm a, a more inferior linguist, but neither of us could have covered all, all these sources, you know, Chinese stuff and the Russian stuff and so on. Um, but we got all that together. So we're saying, look, here's, here's material to think about. The lessons aren't clear, but we have tried to write a book which gives you the sense of the richness of some of these meetings, gives you some of the vitality of them, but also raises some points that we hope people will consider. And like, I think we're both committed to the idea that history is a dialogue itself with other historians. And what we're saying is, here's some new material. You go and think about it. You respond to it. 
um, that's what we're in the business of doing. And it's made us think enormously, having written the thing, hasn't it? Yeah, and having talked to those historians who we made to work together. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in many ways, our book is also a story about dialogue. Mm. And not every dialogue resolves all the problems or comes up with a big bargain. But to communicate is surely better than not to communicate at all and just being in a stalemate. And I think that is really at yes. the heart of our story. Yeah, we wanted, we, we felt dialogue amongst historians matters And that was the interest. It wasn't just that we were writing books in our own, as it were, solitary ways. We learnt a lot from collaborating with other people, collaborating with each other. Was, that was part of the, the real pleasure of the project. That was David Reynolds and Christina Spohr. David is Professor of International History at the University of Cambridge, while Christina is Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics. Transcending the Cold War... Summit Statecraft and the Dissolution of Bipolarity in Europe, 1970-1990, is out now in the UK, published by OUP. And in the US, it will be available in November from the same publisher. And you can read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Victorian slums, King Canute, 19th century Europe and women in politics. You can get hold of our October issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new direct debit subscribers in the UK, whereby you can save 42% on the shop price, paying just £2.87 per issue. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP 208. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Each month in the magazine and on the podcast, we're running a series called Our First World War, which tracks the progress of that conflict 100 years ago, through the voices of those who lived and fought through it. We're now at September 1916, and here, talking to the Imperial War Museum, is Private Harold Haywood, describing his experiences of being wounded at the Somme. And I was hit by a bullet which came up f from the captured German trenches, and no doubt what it was, was the, that um, a, a German had been left behind in one of their deep dugouts which hadn't been bombed and had uh, come up and seen the colonel and let let fly at the colonel and of course as soon as 
that had happened, uh, he would walk on down through towards our reserve lines and giving himself up as a prisoner of war. Nobody would have known. So you never actually got started at all on on this mission? You never actually left? I, I didn't. I made a step. Where were you wounded and what, what had happened? Well, actually, I, I, I was wounded uh, in the scrotum. The bullet, which had come up off the ground and carried dirt with it, uh, went through a, a, a tin, which I'd got cigarettes in, and um, uh, went through me. And uh, the uh, the bullet itself uh, actually protruded uh, from my left haunt. The bullet had entered in the right, my right low side, went gone through the crotch, and uh, uh, came out just poking uh, uh, out of my left haunch. So it was yeah. a serious wound. Uh, how, what, 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 how were you treated in the initial? You know. Well, in the in the, <clears throat> in the initial thing, the. The, uh, this I found out after I'd been carried by Lieutenant uh, uh, Fitz, whatever his name, Fitz, uh, to the dugout that the colonel had decided to make his headquarters. German engineers dugout with tools and all like that. But at least it was a central point and people would know where to go if they wanted to, to get in touch with the colonel, that, that, <clears throat> that, that, that it was there. And, of course, he was able to... Uh, sit down and, and, and write any reports he wished to. And, uh, of course, they, the, our signalers could lay a telephone wire to this place, and he could be able to talk uh, along the line as well as back to brigade when, when he, the lines were fixed up, as, as at this, uh, and it, if it had been bad weather, he was sheltered from the rain, and he could conduct operations from there. Were you still conscious at this time? Or? Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I never lost consciousness. Were you in great pain? Uh, uh, no, I wasn't. Oddly enough, not then, no. So you were laid in the dugout. Did you, re- did you receive any first aid at, at this time? The only thing was that, that uh, uh, Lieutenant Fitz, uh, he, he did put my field dressing on me. And... Uh, uh, he he reassured me that uh, nature provided, uh, like it provides two eyes, it also provides I'm now a father. That was Harold Haywood. You can read more of this series each month in BBC History magazine. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant Ellie Cawthorn. Archaeologists have uncovered what could be the grave of Norman King Henry I the youngest son of William the Conqueror, in a car park in Reading. Using ground-penetrating radar, a team of archaeologists has found a group of graves underneath tarmac land on the former site of Reading Abbey. The investigations were part of an archaeological project to find out more about the history of the Abbey, which was founded by Henry I in 1121. Henry's exact burial spot has long been subject to debate, but a common theory is that he may have been buried in front of Reading Abbey's high altar, close to where the graves were recently discovered. The discovery has been described as, quote, a significant next step in revealing Henry I's hidden abbey. The Ministry of Justice, which owns the land, has plans to start archaeological work this autumn to investigate the area further. The announcement on Monday came exactly five years after archaeologists from Leicester University revealed they had found the bones of Richard III beneath a car park. 
These were later confirmed by DNA testing to be those of the Plantagenet king. Meanwhile, 168 years after the British explorer John Franklin's fatal Arctic expedition, the wreck of his vessel, the HMS Terror, has finally been discovered. The ship was abandoned, along with Franklin's flagship, the HMS Erebus, in 1848, after the expedition party encountered heavy ice in the Arctic's northwest passage. None of the Royal Navy vessel's 129 crew survived, but the exact fate of those on board has long been a mystery. The wreck was uncovered at the bottom of an uncharted bay by a team of investigators from the Arctic Research Foundation. Footage shot from a remote-operated diving vehicle reveals that it's incredibly well-preserved. A can of food, wine bottles and even glass window panes have survived. The terror was found 60 miles away from where it was previously believed to have been abandoned and is sitting level to the seafloor, suggesting that it sank gently to the seabed. Jim Balsilli, who played a key role in finding the wreck, told The Guardian, This discovery changes history. Given the location of the find and the state of the wreck, it's almost certain that the HMS Terror was operationally shut down by the remaining crew, who then reboarded the HMS Erebus and sailed south where they met their ultimate tragic fate. Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, which are taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. A few talks are now selling out, so do check the website historyweekend.com to book your tickets while still available. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about women in politics and the legend of Robinson Crusoe. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.